0: We lift you up, God. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. Amen. And he is risen. You can uh, take a seat. What an awesome thing it is to gather together on an Easter Sunday. Uh, I just want to again thank you for for being here with us for our special easter sunday service and at the eight thirty service, no less. You guys are the early birds right that 's cool. You guys have up anyone had uh, chocolate eggs for breakfast this morning. Come on, I see some guilty hands. I, I didn't actually have chocolate eggs for for breakfast, but I'm planning on a solid of chocolate eggs for morning tea. Uh, but of course, that's that's not why we're here. We're here because we recognise something that God has done on our behalf. We recognise that in God there is provision for our life. And on Easter Sunday, what I love about this is there is a calendared date of the year that we can come together to say this is the absolute core. Of what faith is. This is the absolute center of why we exist as a church. Because once there was separation between me and God, and then because of Jesus and what He did upon the cross, that separation is gone. There's no longer anything that separates me from the love of God. We come together to recognize that Jesus is our King. And today, all I want to do is to focus our attention on Jesus is to focus our attention on Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And I want to take you to a couple of different pictures of who Jesus is this Easter Sunday. And I want to start with this idea of the kingship of Jesus. Some of you would know that the, the Sunday before Easter Sunday is called Palm Sunday. And this Sunday was was uh, uh, it came to be called Palm Sunday because we remember the moment where Jesus entered into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. It was an incredible moment that during the Passover festival, all the Jewish people of the day would gather in Jerusalem. It was a time where the people came together to recognize the awesome provision of God starting way back in Exodus where Moses, through the power of God, let the people of Israel out of captivity into freedom. And ever since that day, the, the Jewish people would celebrate the time of Passover or, or God's provision in their history. And during this festival, you could imagine ancient Jerusalem was just bursting at the seams with Jewish people that had come to recognize the provision of their great God. And in the midst of all of that, we have Jesus. We have the, the teacher, the rabbi, who now his name was becoming known. Just a few days before, there was a man named Lazarus who had died that then Jesus prayed for and he rose from the grave. People were starting to recognize that there was something more to this name of Jesus. And perhaps he was the picture of God's provision in the Messiah, the King that was coming. And so, as Jesus made the trip down the, down the long walkway down to the gates of Jerusalem, the crowd of people burst out of the city to welcome him on either side of the path they, they went for, for hundreds and hundreds of meters a great crowd and as Jesus made that journey towards Jerusalem on the back of that little donkey, the people began to recognize that he was their king. John 12 and verse 12 describes this moment in this way. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The people are making a declaration about who Jesus is. Jesus, he is our Messiah. He is the king that was promised. And as he made his way down to Jerusalem, they laid palm branches down. They took off their cloaks and laid them down on the dirty path so that even the feet of Jesus' donkey would arrive in a position of honor. They were making a statement about who he was. The palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism, and they laid it down saying, Jesus, you are our king. It was an incredible moment that Jesus and his disciples experienced. And in a lot of ways, when we think about what a king is, this kind of picture fits that definition. An individual who is who has power, who has influence, who has authority, who has people that kneel before him. And this is the exact position that Jesus finds himself in as he enters Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. Can I tell you that Jesus is the king? That he is the king of kings. But as I take you to the next picture we're going to see that this king had an unexpected reign. He had an unexpected reign. And it's almost like, okay, what does Jesus do with all of this power, with all of this influence, with all of this fame, with all of this this control? What's he going to do with it? The people have basically put a crown upon his head. What's he going to do? And then the next picture that we see in the account of the Gospels is again celebrating Passover, but this time in an intimate meal with his 12 disciples, the Last Supper. And the disciples and Jesus gather together for this special meal. And as they, they come together uh, around the table, the disciples remember they were a part of this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. They, they picked up on some of the fame and excitement and that they were the centre of it all. And as they gathered together for that meal, they began to argue amongst themselves. Luke twenty-two tells the story that as they realise that the people they, they love Jesus, he's incredible, he's amazing, and then they start to think about themselves. So who's the next greatest amongst us after Jesus? You take the scripture down for a minute. I can kind of see everyone's eyes just like boom. <laughs> who's the next greatest? So Jesus, he's incredible. He's the king. But we're his 12 disciples, right? We're a pretty big deal as well. Who's the greatest amongst us? Who's the least amongst us? Now, it's possible that this particular argument was triggered by a Jewish custom of the day. That for a special meal like the Passover meal, being clean was really important. That's still important for us today but they had a ceremonial or symbolic cleanliness attached to sharing in this special meal where they would recognize the provision of God in their past. And so they wouldn't only wash their hands, but they would wash their feet as well. And remember these are these are first century guys walking around Jerusalem. The paths are dusty, they're dirty. Feet were just a mess. And so as they came together to, to, have their, to, to wash their hands and to wash their feet, there, there was a particular custom amongst Jewish people that whoever was least at that table would wash the feet of everyone else. Now, if you ask me, that's good, uh, good prompting to have an argument about who's the greatest and who's the least. Twelve guys around a little table. Okay, all of a sudden this gets real. <laughs> I don't want to be the least amongst this crowd because I'm going to be washing everyone's feet. And the disciples had this argument about who's the least, who's the greatest, who's the most important. And you can almost imagine that as this argument's going on amongst the disciples, Jesus is staying pretty quiet. He's just watching, he's listening. And then John 13 and verse 3 describes what happens next. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now stop there in your reading for just a moment. Jesus is acutely aware that he is the king. He knows that in his very nature, he is God. He knows that his name is the name above every other name. He knows that he is above and through it all. And knowing all of that, here's what he does. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, so aware of who he is, so aware of his kingship, takes off that crown and takes up the basin and the towel to become least amongst those that were gathered around the table for the benefit of everybody else that was there. You can imagine the disciples' reactions ranging from shocked to horrified. Jesus, you're you're not washing my feet. But Jesus is doing something far greater here. Than an act of humility towards his disciples. It's actually a foreshadow of something far more significant that Jesus is about to do upon the cross. That Jesus isn't just gonna become least amongst the disciples to serve them, but that Jesus is actually gonna lower himself to take off that crown and become least for the benefit of humanity. So let's go to the cross. Let's go to the cross. You know, one of my favorite narratives around the crucifixion is a moment that Jesus has with two men upon the cross. There were three crosses at Calvary. Sometimes we forget that. We just remember Jesus. But there were two other convicted criminals on his left and on his right that were also meeting the fate of the cross on that day. And as the crucifixion, the hours go past, eventually we get to hear a dialogue between the two criminals and Jesus. And we hear it in Luke 23, and starting in verse 39. And here's what it says, one of the criminals, we don't know his name, who hung there, hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So he's kind of taunting Jesus at this point. Imagine him over here upon his cross. He's seen the triumphant entry. He's seen the people declare that this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. He's seen people rise from the dead. And this one criminal experiencing his fate, he's not particularly chuffed with all of that. He says, Jesus, if you're the king... If you're the Messiah, save yourself and me while you're at it. He's in a negative place. He's in a critical place. But what he's crying out for is mercy. He's crying out for mercy. He's saying, Jesus, I don't want to get what I deserve. Hold on to that thought. That's what mercy is. It's not getting what we deserve. And although he's mocking, although he's taunting, this is the cry of his heart. He's on the cross. He's saying, Jesus, I don't want to receive the punishment I deserve. Jesus, I want mercy. I don't want to get what I deserve. Then the conversation goes a little bit further. In verse 40, but the other criminal on the right rebuked him, said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. Underscore that word in your reading, justly. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And so on the other side of the cross, the second criminal responds to that desire for mercy with an acceptance of justice. He says, we're here for a reason. We don't know exactly what their mistakes were. But he's come to the conclusion that both of them, they deserve this punishment. And he says to him, what's happening here on our cross is justice. We are getting what we deserve. Saying, don't you fear God? We deserve this. He doesn't. Close your mouth if you add some extra phrases in there. So on either side of the cross of Jesus, we have a cry for mercy. We have an understanding of justice. And then at the center of it, we have Jesus. And then in verse 42, again, the criminal on the right, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now there's something so profound about this statement because this guy hanging on the cross has already come to the understanding that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. That it wasn't to be the king of Jerusalem. It wasn't to be the king of Israel. It wasn't to redeem them nationally from under Rome. It was none of that. He understood that the kingdom of Jesus was a kingdom of heaven. He understood that the kingdom of Jesus was a kingdom of freedom from sin. It was a kingdom of freedom from anything that separated from relationship with God. And he said, Jesus, remember me in that heavenly kingdom. And then in verse verse 43, Jesus responds with a statement that captures the entirety of the gospel. A statement of grace. And he says, Jesus answered him in verse 43. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus apportions grace to the man on his right that simply acknowledged that Jesus was the king of a different kingdom and said, Jesus, remember me in that kingdom of love and grace. And Jesus did. So here's what we have upon the cross. Mercy, justice, grace. These are the three things that are playing out at the heart of the message of the gospel, at the heart of what Easter is the reality that each one of us requires mercy in our relationship with God. That there's a certain cost attached to the things in my life that separate me from God. And the cry of my heart is, God, don't let me be separated from you because of the sin or the things that separate me from you in my heart. Jesus, I need that mercy. But then also there's an acknowledgement that God is a God of justice, that God is just, that I have made mistakes, there are things in my life that separate me from the absolute holiness and purity of who God is and there's part of me that can acknowledge that you know what I don't deserve the love of God in my life. That as much as I need it, as much as I cry out for, it, as much as I desire mercy for the things that separate me from God, there's part of me that says, in some ways, this is what I deserve. But that's not where the story ends. Because at the center and through it all, there is grace. Now, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace goes beyond mercy, it goes beyond justice, and it goes and finds its definition in the love of who Jesus is. That grace goes beyond them both. And here's how grace works. If we frame it this way, it's getting what we don't deserve. Jesus hung on the cross of grace, and the criminal to his right could see He said, Jesus, he doesn't deserve this. So Jesus went through the cross. He bore the weight of my sin, of my shortcomings. Jesus took what he didn't deserve so I could receive what I don't deserve, his amazing grace. Now that is the kingdom of heaven. That is what the king of heaven brings He goes beyond mercy. He goes beyond justice. And he brings amazing grace. You know, my prayer for you this morning is that you would know the grace of the King. That you would be renewed in the grace and the provision of the King. You know, we're going to take a moment To sing that amazing song, I invite the team to come up and join us. But before we do that, I'd love to give you and us a, a prayer of blessing around the centre of the gospel this morning. Whether for you it's a renewal of the grace of God in your life, or maybe you're new here, maybe church isn't normally a place that you find yourself, but something in your heart said, God, I want to know something of you today. Now, if that's you this morning and you hear this story of who Jesus is, of what he's done, I want to encourage you that there's a step to take. Exactly like our friend on the other side of the cross He said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Now, what he was actually doing was acknowledging that Jesus was the king. He was acknowledging his need for Jesus. He was aware that the grace of God isn't something that he deserved. But through grace, he receives it. I want to invite you this morning to acknowledge Jesus, to acknowledge our risen King, his unexpected reign, what he's done in your life and on your behalf. And even in this moment, I want to invite you to to close your eyes. And I'd love to pray. Oftentimes when we pray like this, the temptation might be to bow your head. But I want to invite you in this moment, rather than bowing, just with your eyes closed to lift your face up to heaven. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your amazing provision upon the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you go beyond mercy or justice and you give grace. And Jesus, I pray that each and every person gathered here this morning would receive that grace in a new way, that it might open their heart to more of who you are, Jesus, if there's anyone here that's saying yes to you for the first time, God, I ask that you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your provision. And God, we ask that this Easter, you'd do something new in our hearts. You'd realign us with the core of what faith is. And Jesus, we'd come to know you in a deeper way. Praise you, God. Amen. You know, just before we sing, I want to encourage you to take a a step. If you're you're here today and something in what we've shared from Scripture or the songs that we've sang have opened your eyes to the reality of God in a new way, I want to invite you to do something. On the the chairs around you, you'll find a, a little Next Steps card. You can grab one, and if you'd love to have a conversation with someone about faith, if you'd love to, to maybe get connected with, with our church and be a part of this kind of space more often, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to be a part of that journey of faith. So I'd encourage you, if God stirred something in your heart this morning and you're not normally at church, I'd encourage you to take one of those, fill it out, come and say hi to me after the service. It'd be great to meet you as well. But don't make this a nice moment. Make it a moment that brings change in your heart. Because our King is alive. He's living and active. And He has greatness for each one of our lives. Because here's the cool thing that crown that Jesus laid down, He laid it down so that each one of us could pick it up. That's how the kingdom of God works releases all of that power and apportions it to each one of us. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to sing that song, Passion, one last time. And as we sing it together, I'd encourage you to make it a declaration in your soul towards who Jesus is, towards what He's done. Come on, let's praise Him together.